Chapter 2, Procrastination and Perfection, from The Art of Procrastination, by John Perry, Professor of Philosophy at Stanford University, narrated by Heather Vessant as a form of structured procrastination. Chapter 2, Procrastination and Perfectionism. Now that you have read the first chapter, If All is Going According to Plan, you realize that although you are a procrastinator, you are a structured procrastinator who gets a lot of valuable work done. So you have quit despising yourself. Still, you may wonder if there is some way to become less of a procrastinator. In the next couple of chapters, I'll develop a few ideas that may apply to your situation and be helpful. I received an interesting and insightful email from someone who had read about structured procrastination. This woman, who I'll call Mistress Imelda, has her own leather fetish gear company and is writing a novel. She writes, I wanted to thank you for your article. My fiancé and I are both procrastinators. He sent your article to me and I could not believe how familiar I was with the things you wrote. I have experienced so much guilt and emotional torture because of my inability to follow through with my many projects, or rather... My choice not to, because I know I'm fully capable of following through and completing my projects, but for some reason, I choose not to. I associate this with my fear of failure, knowing that I will not face rejection and failure as much if I do not complete the project that will be so blatantly subjected to the intense scrutiny of my own personal judgment. Being a perfectionist, getting past my own scrutiny, is one of the hardest issues I face. I have a trilogy of novels unfinished, a small leather fetish gear company with orders not filled, a demo album to start and finish, a graphic novel, numerous paintings and sketches to do. I manage to do things like sort and clean my paintbrushes, arrange my computer for space to store my music projects that are not started, sort out my chapters and do many, many summaries on my characters and plot because all of this makes me feel as if I'm getting closer to actually working on these things. I've even tried to write prospective bands and announce that I'm working on my demo to somehow provide myself with a goal, an actual date to be finished. When they reply, excited for me and eager to hear the demo, it only further amplifies my fear of starting and of subsequent rejection. I am so deeply a procrastinator that I refuse to commit to any other people on projects, knowing I will let them down. This keeps me limited to only disappointing myself with my constant deviations from the important goals I have, only to work on less important ones. Your article was so very similar to the way I do things. I was shocked, even dumbfounded, that any other person could possibly do this. It brought self-understanding to me in a way no one has previously done in the area of self-motivation. Thank you so much. Imelda. Mistress Imelda is an insightful procrastinator because she realizes that she is a perfectionist. But which comes first, the procrastination or the perfectionism? I think perfectionism leads to procrastination. I was slow to see the connection between the two because I don't think of myself as a perfectionist. Many procrastinators do not realize that they are perfectionists for the simple reason that we have never done anything perfectly or even nearly so. We have never been told that something we did was perfect, nor have we ourselves felt that anything we did was perfect. We think, quite mistakenly, that being a perfectionist implies often or sometimes, or at least once, having completed some task to perfection. But this is a misunderstanding of the basic dynamic of perfectionism. Perfectionism, of the sort I am talking about, is a matter of fantasy, not reality. Here's how it works in my case. 
Someone wants me to do something. Perhaps a publisher wants me to referee a manuscript that has been submitted, which involves giving an opinion about whether it is worth publishing and, if it is, how it might be improved. I accept the task, probably because the publisher offers to pay me with a number of free books, which I wrongly suppose that if I owned, I would get around to reading. Immediately, my fantasy life kicks in. I imagine myself writing the most wonderful referee, referee's report. I imagine giving the manuscript an incredibly thorough read and writing an evaluation that helps the author to greatly improve his efforts. I imagine the publisher getting my write-up and saying, Wow, this is the best referee report I've ever read. I imagine my report being completely accurate, completely fair, incredibly helpful to both author and publisher. Why do I have such fantasies? God knows. Or maybe my shrink does. Perhaps my father did not praise me enough as a child. Or maybe he heaped praise on me when, once, accidentally, no doubt, I accomplished some tasks extremely well. Perhaps such fantasies are genetic. But this is, at most, just a practical multi-step program, not an attempt at psychotherapy. The first step is to read the previous chapter, Structured Procrastination. This is the second step, if I figure out any more steps that will be in subsequent chapters. So we won't worry about why I or you have such fantasies. The point is that if you are a procrastinator of the garden variety sort, something like this probably goes through your mind. This is perfectionism in the relevant sense. It's not a matter of really ever doing anything that is perfect or even, that even comes close. It's a matter of using tasks you accept to feed your fantasy of doing things perfectly, or at any rate, extremely well. How does the fantasy of perfection feed procrastination? Well. It's not so easy to do things perfectly. Well, at least I assume that it is not. Perhaps someday I'll do something perfectly and then I'll know for sure. Presumably, one needs time and the proper setting. Clearly, to referee this manuscript, I need to read it carefully. That will take quite a few hours. I want to go beyond the manuscript itself and read some of the material that the author cites to make sure the author is accurate and fair in what he says about it. I've read book reviews by philosophers I admire, and they obviously do this. It's very impressive. I need to be over in the library to do that property, properly. Actually, in today's world, one doesn't need to be in the library. One can find a lot of this stuff on the web, if one knows how. Unfortunately, I don't know how. I know that there is this thing called JSTOR that allows one to access lots of academic journals online. If you're working at Stanford, you can access it through the library. But it would be nice to be able to access it at home. I may want to work late into the night on this referee job. To access JSTOR at home, you need to set something up called a proxy server. I better figure out how to do that. A few hours later, I'm done setting up the proxy server. Most likely, I'm done because I've given up. Every time I think I have the thing set up, it doesn't work right or my screen goes blank. But suppose instead that I'm done because I've actually managed to make the proxy server work. One thing I will not have done is start on the referee job. I will have invested enough time I will have invested enough time to actually give in the book a quick read and to form an opinion of it, but I will not have done this or even gotten started. I will feel like a schmuck and rightly so. Then what happens? I go on to other things. Most likely the manuscript slowly disappears under subsequent memos, mail, empty potato chip bags, piles of files, and other things that accumulate on my desk. Then, in about six weeks, I get an email from the publisher asking when she can expect the report. Maybe if she's dealt with me before, this email arrives a bit before I promise the report. If she hasn't, it, it arrives a few days after the deadline. 
Now, finally, I snap into action. My fantasy structure changes. I no longer picture myself writing the world's best referee report ever. I imagine some woman back in the New York office of Oxford University Press. I picture her empty-handed going to the editorial meeting where she promised to have an evaluation of the manuscript. I'm sorry, she says to her boss. I counted on this fellow from Stanford, but he didn't come through. That's it, her boss says. You're fired. But I've got three small children. My husband is in the hospital and the mortgage is overdue, she says. I'm sorry, he replies. I've got a business to run. I imagine meeting this woman. She gives me a withering stare. You cost me my job, she says. And then there is the author. Maybe whether or not he gets tenure turns on getting this book accepted. It's probably a great book, a masterpiece that has been sitting on my desk and read while the tenure decision lies in the balance. Perhaps someday the whole world of philosophy will know that this deserving person was denied tenure because John Perry sat on his manuscript like the editors at the physics journals who turned down Einstein's early manuscripts. Uh, I'm not even sure that happened. I meant to look it up, but I haven't gotten around to it. At this point, I dig through the files, magazines, and unopened correspondence on my desk. And after a bit of panic, have I lost the manuscript? Will I have to ask a publisher for another copy? Should I lie and say that I thought I mailed the manuscript back with the review, but it must have been in that briefcase the mugger took from me? I find it. I take a few hours, read it, write a perfectly adequate report, and then send it off. Now, let's analyze what happened. First of all, let's note that because I am a structured procrastinator, I have used the referee report as a way of getting a lot of doing a lot of other things. For example, perhaps I set up that proxy server. A colleague says plaintively at some point, I'd like to access JSTOR from home, but I don't have the proxy server set up. Oh, I exclaimed jauntily. I set mine up a couple weeks ago. Works great. How did you ever find the time, he asked I admiringly. I don't reply, but look smug. Furthermore, procrastinating was a way of giving myself permission to do a less than perfect job on a task that didn't require a perfect job. In theory, as long as the deadline was a ways off, I had plenty of time to go to the library or set myself up for a long evening at home and do a thoroughly, scholarly, perfect job refereeing this book. But when the deadline was near, there was no, ta- no longer time to do a perfect job. I had to just sit down and do an imperfect but adequate job. The fantasies of perfection are replaced by the fantasies of utter failure. So I finally got to work on it. In the end, things turned out okay. I did finish the report. It wasn't too late. The editor kept her job. The book was accepted or not. The author received tenure or not. True, the report wasn't perfect, but it was perfectly good enough. So structured procrastination seems to be working. But still, can't we do better? Can't we avoid the emotional turmoil and the waste of everyone's time that these perfectionist fantasies lead to? It would have been simpler for me and for the publisher and the author if I had sat down and spent four or five hours on the manuscript right off the bat. If only I had been able to give myself permission to do an imperfect job right at the outset. Is there anything we can do to bring that about? Well, I think there is, but it requires a little self-discipline. Not a lot. What one needs to do to bring one's perfectionist fantasies under control is what I call task triage. Triage basically means sorting according to urgency. Its most common use is in the context of decisions made by early medical responders in wars, natural disasters, and crowded emergency rooms. 
They need to decide which victims are hopeless, which may survive if they get immediate treatment, and which can be made comfortable and treated later. The decisions I'm talking about aren't really that similar, but I like the sound of task triage. Maybe we can think of turning down the tasks as letting them die. Some can reasonably be left until later, but for many tasks, it will work out best if you get started on them, planning to do an adequate job, perhaps even a bit better than adequate, but nothing perfect. You have to get into the habit of forcing yourself to analyze, at the time you accept the task, the costs and benefits of doing a less than perfect job. You must ask yourself some questions. How useful would a perfect job be here? How much more useful would it be than a merely adequate job, or even a half-assed job? And you've got to ask yourself, what is the probability that I will really do anything like a remotely perfect job on this? And what difference will it make to me and to others whether I do or not? Often the answer will be, a less than perfect job will do just fine, and moreover, it's all I am ever going to do anyway. So I give myself permission to do a less than perfect job now, rather than waiting until the task is overdue, which means I may as well do it now, or at least start on it tomorrow.